0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We are here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide.
1: And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist.
0: And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter six in the book. So Dr. Smith, chapter six is titled A Context of Connection and in this chapter, we look at how the therapeutic relationship sets the stage for corrective information necessary for healing. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, please?
1: Good, sure. So this really follows on the, the previous podcast that was about how extinction and reconsolidation work, how those processes allow the healing of painful and difficult uh, emotions, and they work by, uh, at the same time, the person feeling the emotion and then being exposed to uh, or experiencing a sense of, of safety and calmness. And that safety is really essential to undo the the danger that was originally experienced, the danger that is incorporated in the whatever affect the person has been avoiding. So now, this time, we're gonna take our microscope and focus in on how actually do we convey a sense of safety in the midst of a moment where the person is experiencing a really, really upsetting affect. Not surprisingly, the way we really convey safety is mainly through the relationship. It's not by saying, hey, we're here in an office and and nothing bad is going to happen. There aren't any bad guys out there with guns. This is going to be okay. No, it's by the way we talk and the way we form an empathic bond. So that's really kind of the core of what we're going to be talking about. How does that actually work? And I kind of like the the phrase, a context of connection, because it's context. It's you have a dual consciousness on the one hand of the upsetting events and emotions attached to them and on the other hand you have a consciousness that we're here in a peaceful place and it's it's going to be okay. So
0: you provide in the beginning of the chapter the prototype of the toddler to parent relationship in the event that the toddler falls down. Can you tell us a little bit about that to set the stage for how the relationship between client and therapist is really set.
1: Right, so when we think about what happens when a little kid uh, who's just learned to walk falls down, it's really instructive and it's quite complex, the, the communication that takes place. So, so our little toddler is, is, uh, is prancing along the lawn outside. It's a sunny day in the springtime and, and the little child falls down. What she first does is she doesn't cry she looks up and makes eye contact with mom and that eye contact conveys some information to mom says to mom that the child is experiencing uh-oh something something happened and the child is is really wondering is this a bad thing is it is what what's going on and mom quickly assesses the situation and her face and her voice send the message back that through my eyes, my mother's eyes, it's, it's okay, you don't have to worry, everything's going to be all right. The child takes in that tone of voice, the look of the face, and maybe the words, and that all of a sudden provides a context of connection so that the child's inner experience is juxtaposed with the mother's outside perspective, and suddenly the distress calms down and the kid gets up and goes on playing and everything's okay. Now, what happens if the mother says, oh my gosh, then the child is going to cry, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And so that's the difference between an experience that that reinforces the upsetting quality of it versus an experience that's calming. And to me, that model is kind of the, the archetype of how emotional healing actually works. It works by bringing together the painful or upsetting experience and the calming outside perspective of another human being with whom we feel we have a connection.
0: So this prototypical information exchange contains exactly the same elements as the exchange that transforms affects in psychotherapy.
1: Exactly and that's the core point of this chapter. Uh, it's, it's about how a therapeutic bond happens, empathy happens, when we understand empathically, as human beings naturally do, we understand the distress that our patient is experiencing. And at the same time, as a, as a therapist, as an outsider, we have a certain perspective. We're not overwhelmed by the emotions, and we don't have to work at conveying this sense of outside perspective and safety, it's not anything special that we might say, it's just the fact that we're there, we're empathically connected, and we know that ultimately it's gonna be okay.
0: So in the case of the adult trauma survivor, this connection has the potential for reconsolidation or extinction of the negative affect associated with the trauma.
1: Exactly. Can you tell us more about mm-hmm. that? Yes, but first I want to say that this process is something that goes on all the time in everyday life as well as in the, in the therapy situation. Think about if an elderly person gets a diagnosis of, of terminal cancer and they know they're going to die and they want to make contact with with loved ones and when you're there with somebody in that sort of situation you don't have to tell them hey we're gonna beat this cancer or or something like that all we have to do is just be present and be okay and after that encounter the person who's had this very upsetting news is gonna feel significantly better and, and so there are even ways that kind of trivialize these sometimes people talk about venting your feelings or have a good cry And that makes it as if it was something sort of mechanical. It's not. It's really quite sublime. It's making the best possible use of this human capacity for empathic connection and how that helps us to soften, modulate. Uh, Sometimes psychologists call it processing emotions. But again, that's dehumanizing. That's why I'd rather use the word healing. So with recognizing that this is a very, very general mechanism, a general phenomenon that goes on all the time in life, it has a special, special relevance to situations involving traumatic experiences. So trauma is, is perhaps the most quintessential situation where we can get out our magnifying glass and take a look at how this actually unfolds. And fortunately, Amélie is a uh, trained EMDR therapist. I am not. I think I, I thought I understood something about EMDR, but I think she can do a better job of describing how, it, how an EMDR session actually helps somebody who's had a traumatic experience. Do you want to give us kind of a, a, a magnifying glass blow by blow uh, description of how it works?
0: So there's a lot to be said about EMDR and it's it's a it's a straightforward but somewhat complex protocol that addresses many aspects of negative affect and pathology. But in the context of of this chapter here what I have found is that it tends to accelerate the depth of the therapeutic relationship because we encourage our patients to follow the stream of their consciousness as it relates to a traumatic event that will have been uh, identified beforehand.
1: So, so let's take the, the example from the last podcast where a girl was in the backseat of a car and suddenly it gets, it gets broadsided by another car, bang, and that moment then is kind of frozen in in her mind and her experience with with feelings of terror
0: so what i would have my my patient do is identify the very worst picture of of that that traumatic event i would say to her okay if you could pull out a photograph from your back pocket showing me uh emily look this this is the worst of it And it would be with her father who, with his superficial but gruesome looking wounds, would be attending to the mother who is in extreme pain, stuck behind the driver, the the steering wheel, and my patient in the back seat, unable to move because of her broken leg, witnessing all of this, right? So that would be the picture, and I would say start with that as if you were watching a movie while I stimulate you acoustically so you're listening to the sounds you have tappers in your hands that are vibrating so
1: this means clicking
0: Uh, clicking left and right uh, for about 10 to 15 seconds while she's thinking and allowing her mind to just flow as if she were watching a movie and she cannot control the images that appear on the screen and then when I stop the stimulation it's as if we had paused the movie on the screen I say okay so what was the last thing that came up for you and she'll tell me where her mind was paused I will write it down and I'll say okay go with that
1: okay so hold on a sec now at that moment so what's going on on the one hand with affect and on the other hand with a corrective sense of safety because the original scene was anything but safe
0: so because she's being physically stimulated, there is a part of her that is reminded that she is in the very safe, comfortable therapy room. She is in the here and now. So she has one foot, so to speak, in the here and now, and another foot in the negative affect, in the remembrance of that traumatic event. And the dissonance between the two experiences that she's having simultaneously has the effect of fragmenting her long-term potentiation, her memory of that event, so that the affect itself comes to surface and almost is neutralized in the here and now because she is, in fact, safe.
1: So it really sounds like what we're doing there is 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 as we discussed in the last podcast, reconsolidation, where the affect has been activated by, by her visualizing this scene, and there's a, a sense of safety. And I think the point of this chapter is that probably the most powerful element in the sense of safety is not that it's a pleasant room, but that she's got an empathic human being who is experiencing, who's listening and following this experience um, with her and reflecting back this sense of, of calm and it's going to be okay at the same time as she's experiencing something that's not okay at all. And that's when those synapses get readjusted to disconnect the danger signals from the experience itself so that afterwards it's not going to have the same Kind of toxic uh, feeling to it, and and whatever avoidance mechanisms this person has been using to never have to visualize that scene are are no longer necessary.
0: Right, absolutely. Uh, EMDR really has the effect of kind of parting the curtains of the defense mechanisms. Right, because the client, number one, you have to have some kind of therapeutic relationship pre-established before you're going to apply the protocol, but. Number two, because we're following the stream of the patient's consciousness, there's really not a whole lot of room for the defense mechanisms to kick in.
1: Right, and, and I think at least one of my thoughts has been that the, that the alternating stimuli also kind of distract the intellectual mind. So it's very hard to intellectualize things, which is one of the, one of the main ways that people get rid of their affects in, in, in therapy sessions. I think EMDR as you describe it also has a really wonderful effect of kind of providing some structure and breaking down the experience into chunks yes that that aren't so overwhelming so it really is is reassuring just in the structure that it brings
0: yes and there's one additional point that I think is really worth making is that with the patient's willingness to to verbalize her flow of con- her stream of consciousness i am invited she lets me in and she allows me to witness that stream of consciousness which really intensifies the therapeutic bond because i have been with her during the reliving of that traumatic event and and after we we apply the protocol, we will talk about it. We'll spend a couple sessions sometimes just talking about what we did process and what what it was about being powerless in the backseat of that car, seeing her parents' lives in danger. And, And so we've already gone to the depth of the raw affect and we've brought it to surface. And then because I've already witnessed it, she is able to better talk about it with more objectivity as opposed to subjectivity which she might want to defend herself against.
1: So in the context of this chapter, you bring up a really, really important point that empathy, we we have a tendency to be superficial about that. Empathy isn't just, oh yeah, I understand that this is painful. It's really about understanding the details, the granular Images and and details of an experience, and when you ask people to share that with you, so that you can have what some people have called accurate empathy, right. uh, you 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 find out that the things that have impacted this person are not the ones you might have guessed. You know, you might have thought that it was the it was how much her tibia hurt because it was fractured, uh, but no, it was maybe the sound of the. Of the crash or maybe it was that the image of the of the injuries on the father's face or something like that instead so by inquiring on the details that's how we achieve accurate empathy which is really what makes empathy work when it's when the person knows that they've been understood down to the detail and when you inquire in that way it actually helps the person to get closer to their affects and closer to the, the experience itself and that's what allows more reconsolidation to be taking place. That's the permanent healing as opposed to extinction which is just the cortex learning to inhibit the, the reaction to whatever happened rather than erasing the sense of danger in the first place. So it's a really interesting and uh, neat technique. We're not going to go into it in tremendous depth but I, I do think it's quite important. Um, I'm not alone in that. Bessel van der Kolk, uh, uh, who's one of the country's experts on trauma, is, is a strong supporter of EMDR as well. The acronym means Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is kind of a mouthful, but it's really a technique that's very specific for trauma and also has other uses besides that when it comes to Incorrect beliefs, which we'll get to in a later chapter, and problematic values and attitudes, which are another chapter that we'll get to later on. So it has a wide range of applications, but it started out kind of with trauma and, and is really very much at home in situations that involve traumatic memories.
0: Yes, uh, you know, what you say about the imaginal aspect of it, all of the imagery that that, that takes up space in in our patient psyches is it, it, it's really wonderful to get those details. and the the sense experience, like for her, for instance, it was a smell of blood, the mm-hmm. metallic scent, smell of blood. Mm-hmm. And so having, You know, kind of watching the flow of her consciousness, the stream Mm -hmm. of her consciousness gives me a lot more information that I could possibly have thought to ask about. And then in future sessions, when she'll tell me, you know, I walked into this person's apartment and smelled like metal. I will say, oh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like in the back seat of the car. Mm-hmm. And just to be able to make that association and to, uh, will, yes. will suddenly explain to her why she was uneasy in this person's apartment, for instance. It's, it's rich with information that can always be used for healing purposes.
1: That's great. And, and those of us who are not trained specifically in EMDR have a lot to learn from this process to learn about how not being satisfied with anything less than a detailed understanding of, of the things that our patients experience, this is something that we can take from EMDR, and we can also um, uh, get a, a kind of, again, a magnifying glass view of a healing moment, and that really helps to understand exactly how it's working.
0: Uh, So, Dr. Smith, moving forward, is it possible to have a solo experience uh, in self-healing?
1: It's a really, really interesting question, Uh, and and it's one that I've thought about a lot for a long time. Sometimes patients will say, well, okay, I had this bad experience, but can't I just cry in the shower by myself? Because they don't really want to share it, because they don't want to experience those painful affects, they want to avoid them. So can you do that? And, and then in the course of thinking about this, another example uh, came up, which is how Francine Shapiro originally discovered it. She was out in the woods um, having a, a not great day, thinking about something uh, painful that was going on in her life. And she found herself looking back and forth from left and right. And, and as she moved her eyes back and forth, and thought about her painful experience, it got better and that led to her developing this therapy, but as she developed the therapy, now we introduce another person with an empathic connection. And so it raises the question of, do you really need another human being there with you? So I'm going to share with you how this helped me to understand what's really going on. It also connects with something that's very much in, in talked about these days, which is mindfulness meditation. And mindfulness meditation is another solo practice that is often thought of as a way for people to de-stress, to help themselves with uncomfortable, painful feelings, and that's something you do all by yourself. Yes. So I think the answer to this is something that, that goes back to Margaret Mahler, who uh, wrote a lot about early childhood experience and particularly about object constancy, how children come starting at age two, two and a half, somewhere like that, to be able to tolerate moms going out of the room for a while and, and then coming back. And the thinking is that the way they begin to be able to handle that experience is that they've begun to internalize, to make part of themselves this sense of being lovable, lovable by somebody else. And you might notice that if you carry with you a portable sense of being lovable in the eyes of somebody else, like your mom, that's very similar to that look out in the garden when the, when the, the toddler fell down and mom was watching. Eventually, little by little, that becomes part of oneself. Therapists have called it basic trust. It's this sense that you're not alone, you're really going to be okay. And some people don't have it. Some people have more of it. And sometimes people, especially those who've been traumatized, can have it get uh, disrupted when you're in a stressful situation. So... When a patient is talking about something that was really, really distressing, there's a good chance that their internal sense of connectedness, of safety, of being lovable and taken care of from outside might be disrupted and might not be available to them. So that's to me what makes the difference between being able to heal emotions alone versus needing to have a therapist or a witness present. If your internal sense of connectedness isn't available, then you need another person. Right. And if your sense of being connected and seen and lovable from outside is available to you, then you can probably do okay with mindfulness meditation or going out in the woods and looking from left to right um, or, or some other some other way that allows you to experience your affect and at the same time experience the affect in a context of connection, but it's not an external context of connection, it's an internal context of connection.
0: So if the, when the core self is really threatened, then you need a witness, such as a therapist.
1: Exactly.
0: You. You spend about a paragraph in this chapter writing about something that is very interesting and that a lot of people who are not in the field ask me about. This idea that the therapist can be overwhelmed. Don't you take this home, they ask me. Don't you get overwhelmed with all of these stories of trauma that you hear? And the truth is, no, I don't. But could could you speak to our listeners a little bit about what if the therapist is overwhelmed?
1: Well, certainly it does happen once in a while that therapists freak out. And uh, in my in my blog, howtherapyworks.com, uh, there are many, many accounts of therapists who can't handle an intense relationship. And they'll suddenly terminate with a patient or you're not allowed to contact me ever again and just brutally terrible things. So clearly, therapists sometimes do get overwhelmed and that's a therapist who shouldn't really be doing that kind of therapy with that particular person in the first place. That's a right. therapist who's in trouble. <laughs> yes, And it can cause a lot of damage. On the other hand, most, most therapists, and most of the time, uh, um, are OK. I'm, I'm curious about your answer. Mine is that I'm pretty good at knowing what I can fix and what I can't fix. And I know that I can be an empathic witness, but I can't fix things. I can't alter the the conditions of a person's life. I can't re-engineer their past, and so with that with that clarity, I know not to try to change things that I have no power over, and it's powerlessness that really causes the distress. So I don't feel that distress. I don't take it home with me. I might feel bad about the person i might I might think about what they've told me, uh, but I don't feel like I have to change something, or fix something that I can't fix?
0: So my experience of it is um, I'm a swimmer. I think of it as my patients initially come to me because they are in turbulent emotional waters, stormy seas, and they're flailing. They need help. And in uh, the first few sessions, we identify the therapeutic goals which is basically identifying the shore that they would like to swim toward. And I, I use that metaphor with them, saying, okay, so this is what's troubling you now, these are your turbulent emotional waters, and this is a shore that you would like to swim toward, where you will be on, on firm ground, and dry, and a and, uh, freestanding human, and we're gonna get there. And the process might be difficult because, yes, we are in in turbulent emotional waters, but I'm going to swim right along with you, and we're going to keep going until we get there. And so that, to me, as a therapist, is um, kind of definitely keeping my eye on the solution, Mm -hmm. which may not, on on the end goal. Mm -hmm. So I may not know exactly how long it's going to take us to Mm -hmm. get there, Um, I cannot fix the emotional waters but I know that we will eventually arrive at a shore uh, hopefully of my patients choosing and, and a healthy one and in that way I don't take my patients problems home with me I don't lose hope for my patient because I just realize that if we have a setback in the therapy or if we're not going at the pace that
1: I would like
0: <laughs> that I just need to adjust my own expectations and yep. say okay yep. we're gonna keep swimming here Yep.
1: so you use your perspective in order to feel okay yourself and it kind of highlights the difference between what I think of as being uh, caught by a wave in the sea where you're tumbled all around by by your emotions we get inside ourselves when we're overwhelmed with things and when we're trying to do something that we can't do versus being on a surfboard on top of a wave where you can feel the power of the wave but you're not overwhelmed by it and you have a perspective on it and and things are okay and that's that's really what we bring to these these very very upsetting situations i want to talk just a little bit about another aspect of the context of connection john norcross among others uh, talks about common factors in therapy that have been shown to correlate with success in therapy. Well, this basic healing of emotions is one of the core processes that goes on in therapy, but there are other things that therapy does like helping people be motivated to do the hard work and and helping them make changes in behavior, such as letting go of some of these avoidance mechanisms that we're talking about. And changing behavior is not such an easy thing either. I just want to point out that the context of connection that having a a coach, having a person with an outside perspective to help you see the positive outcome that that you're heading for is very very helpful in in supporting motivation and making it easier to to go through the 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 difficult parts of making changes and sustaining the the effort of of therapy. So the context of connection is, is kind of an all-purpose Swiss army knife of, of therapy. It's something that has a role in just about every aspect of therapy, but it's, it's really central when it comes to processing painful emotions.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think without a strong therapeutic bond, the therapy is going to be inefficient at best.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, yes.
0: Yeah. This was really an important chapter. So this concludes today's podcast, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website, www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book and follow along in the podcasts. Uh, The title of the book is Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide. And at the website, you can also find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything?
1: Well, I certainly do appreciate your being able to bring your own experience and your knowledge of, of EMDR into this session. That's a special treat. And, and so, with that, uh, let me say goodbye.
0: Okay. Well, you're welcome. And goodbye, everybody, until next time when we'll do chapter seven. Very good. Bye bye.